All right, I'm excited to kick off week two of our series called Rooted. As you know, if you weren't here last week, we've got a little history. Every, every week in this series is, involves some history. And I know for some of us, that's not great. Um, I know history for churches is sort of strange when we look at the landscape of, of the American church. History is often hidden. We want to bury that history deep because if we leave too much of a trail of breadcrumbs, we're going to find some things. We're going to discover that history, like the present, uh, because it's because we're people in the church, is full of folks sinning boldly. <laughs> so sometimes our history isn't that pleasant, and there's things we're not really proud of in our history. But it's important for us to, I think, understand our roots, understand our history, so we know who we are. In, in our history, there's, there's our identity. And so we know the trajectory for our future. We've got to know the past. We've got to look back to our roots. So I hope you're hanging in there with the history. Um, one slide I want, to, I want to bring to our attention, though, is this first slide. So you'll notice February 10th is today at 3 p.m., and you are in the chapel. We are in the chapel. So Pastor David is going to give some town hall meetings today and this week as we're in this series talking about the roots of the Methodist movement. What we're not going to discuss is this, which is General Conference February 23rd to 26th is a special called general conference to talk about issues related to human sexuality and the church. So I know for many of you, that brings to mind some questions. You have questions about that. And Pastor David is going to give a presentation and try to do the best he can to answer all your questions with something other than I don't know. But there's gonna be probably a lot of I don't know because of all the plans and proposals and all sorts of stuff. So we're not gonna discuss any of that throughout this sermon series, but I want you to be mindful of those dates and times. And as we think back and continue into this rooted sermon series, we're talking about the life of John Wesley and his impact. That's, he's, he really deserves most of the credit for the way in which this early Methodist movement just catches fire and explodes and turns into the Methodist church becomes the largest church in the early 1800s throughout the United States. So in, in thinking about that, it's easy to think John, a guy like John Wesley is superhuman and that, you know, some of the maybe dreams that you've had in your life and the big plans that you've had that God's placed on your heart, I, maybe we've talked ourselves out of that because like, I'm not equipped like some of our heroes to do some of these things. And it's easy, I think, to look at a guy like John Wesley who traveled the earth 10 times around on horseback throughout the course of his life and preached 40,000 sermons throughout his life to think, man, some spider bit him or he got struck by lightning or he was given some superhuman abilities. And he's like some of those comic crazy people that he can't be human to do that throughout the course of his life in the 1700s. The fact that he even lived that long is amazing doing all that, right? But no, I mean, John Wesley, we're not gonna get too deep into this, but we talked about how he struggled um, he struggled in his marriage. He struggled with early on in his life, even as a, as a priest with this self-obsession, this preoccupation, like he, he, John Wesley was very human. So I think it's just important for us to know as we look at history, our heroes are human. And our heroes are heroes. So 
we're going to talk about a, a different angle of the, or a different aspect of the Methodist movement. We talked last week about John, John Wesley's understanding of salvation with the four alls that all need to be saved, all can be saved, all can know that they're saved, and then all can be saved to the uttermost. Right, So we talked about that last week. This week we're going to talk about more along the lines of what happens, what happens sort of after you come to believe one of the things that characterized the earliest Methodist movement. That's, that's the aspect today that we're going to talk about. Uh, but before we get there, many of you know a few weeks ago went to New York and ate, I ate all the food. We, Lindsay Kay and I just, just tried to eat as much as we possibly could. And one of my favorite meals was at a place called Jacob's Pickles. And it was this chicken biscuit that was so good and it was piled high with pickles. Now, I hated pickles as a kid. I just despised pickles. It was one, I couldn't stand the smell. I couldn't stand the taste. And as I grew up in elementary school and high school, you, if you would have asked me, do you like pickles? No, I don't like pickles. I can't stand pickles. Not because I had tried pickles lately, but because I remembered the memory as a kid, like, ugh. And then even as a young adult, you know how that goes with some foods. There's probably still some foods that, that I will discover that I like, that I couldn't stand as a kid. I love pickles now, but I had to actually try pickles. Um, 16 months old, my, my son Max I could use some advice and some wisdom. So after service, if you want to give me some advice and some wisdom, I will receive all of it. We're in that stage where introducing new foods is, is tough. So there's always this suspicious, like, I don't want to eat whatever it is you're putting in my mouth. And, and sometimes we'll get that face, like, I'm going to spew this. I'm not going to finish it. And, and sometimes he'll, like, take that speck of a bite and accept and it's just such a win. We act a fool. We try to do all the things to get him to eat his food. His, his palate is obviously very limited right now. There's very few foods that satisfy him right now. I want to read us this quote from C.S. Lewis. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this. The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. He's like English and lived in the early 1900s, so I guess duckling, you know. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. 
which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. You see, Lewis is saying that our appetites or desires are God-given and so are the things that satisfy those appetites or desires. But we get in trouble, I think, a little bit. This gift of freedom that we're given, we can get wandering aimlessly pretty quickly and we get caught up in indulgences and pleasures and we, we try to seek for satisfaction in the wrong places and in the wrong things and in the wrong people. We, we search and we search and we, we look for answers in the wrong places and we try to find that satisfaction in places that we just never, we're never satisfied. There's this longing. He's saying in a literary way what Wesley says that, that we need, like we need, our appetites need to be educated. <laughs> Our palate needs to expand. Like we're, we're meant to mature on to solid food, to spiritual food. This is getting at what Wesley calls us to do to just hunger and thirst for God. But our appetites, we, we, need, we need an education. Our appetites need to be educated. We've got to get beyond Max's longing for cheeseburgers. <laughs> All he wants is cheeseburgers, just cheeseburgers. Always can count on cheeseburgers. And as, as much as Max, like being, in, and I know you guys have, have felt this and experienced this, as much as like his smile and his presence as a kid, his innocence is, is satisfying, like even that, what Lewis is saying, as beautiful as he is, he's, he's just a, like a mirage. He's just like an echo of God's perfect nature. He points to God but he isn't as God as much as he acts like it sometimes, right? And so two questions I, I wanna lay before us that, to guide our exploration today is how do we educate and expand our appetite to desire God? And two, how do we stay on the steady diet and continue to grow closer to God and each other, which is so important for Wesley? So, to get at this a little bit, I want us to find Philippians chapter one. That's the passage that we're gonna be in this morning, Philippians one, verses three to 11. If, if you have your Bible, I invite you to it. Blue Bibles, we're gonna be on page 1822 or you can follow along. This is what Paul is saying at the start of his letter to the church in Philippians. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless 
for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul is offering some insight here as to how we can educate our appetites to desire more and more of God. And what Paul says right at the outset, what's very obvious is you need more than you in this. You need more than you. Any plan you have to do this on your own, any special plan, any special deal, if you're by yourself, you will fail. You will fail. So Paul has this special relationship with the church at Philippi. The church of Philippi for Paul is an answered prayer. I mean, Paul, we've talked about, has faced a lot of opposition. When you think about the elements and his journeying, he's faced with opposition in churches who don't really respect his authority right at the outset. He's got to convince them. The church of Philippi is an answered prayer to Paul. They love him. They accept his authority. (laughs) They long for him. He longs for them. They're providing financial benefit. They're they're gifting a lot of things. They're providing Paul with a lot of resources as he's journeying around and sharing the gospel. They represent an answered prayer. And Paul says, I thank God every time I remember you. And I was just arrested by that verse this week because I was like, man, if I thanked God every time I remembered Lindsay Kay or Max or my family or y'all, if I like thanked God every time I remembered these answers to prayer, my affection, my, my desire for the Lord would increase. Like my focus on all this earthly mess and getting distracted would decrease. Like I just, I was taken aback by that. Paul says, I thank God every time I remember you. And Paul's remembering answered prayers. And I don't know about y'all, but man, I, I frequently remember the prayers that don't get answered when I want them to get answered and the way I want them to get answered when I'm struggling, when maybe someone dies or our day is just going the way we don't want it to go. We're in a tough time. We maybe have just gotten fired. It's easy for me to recall times in my life where, Lord, where were you? You didn't answer prayers in my situation the way I wanted it, I wanted it to go right, right here, right now. I remember, I remember that. But when things are all right, do we remember the prayers God answers? And Paul, in remembering the church of Philippi, he's remembering answered prayers. And even as we walk in day in and day out, are we aware that we are living proof of answered prayers? Like those people in our lives that are praying for us, that are praying for our well-being, that are praying for us to get out of that meeting, that are praying for us to have courage in the interview. Like we are living proof. Do we remember that? I, I was just challenged. Like, are, do we remember those people who are our partners in this? Always, who will stop everything to help us. And I think Paul's saying when we when we remember those folks, man. Our appetite, our appetite, our desire for the things of God increases in us. Paul also says like he he longs for us to have this love that abounds with knowledge and depth of insight. That's Paul's prayer for us. And Wesley says that in order for us to get that, that love to abound and for our knowledge and depth of insight for for that to increase in us, we have to practice what Wesley calls a means of grace. Wesley says we need to practice a means of grace for that. And 
And, and grace, grace isn't a thing. It's not like we can just go buy grace. It isn't something we buy or sell. It's not a commodity. Grace actually isn't a thing. Grace is a person. Grace is a presence. And so practicing the means of grace is what reveals that person and that presence in our lives. The means of grace for Wesley are like holy habits that, that allow us, that expand our, our appetite to see and become aware of the presence of God more and more in our lives. This means of grace is what Wesley has in mind for us. And that's what ultimately will lead us to experience that assurance of our salvation that Wesley experienced. And in all the talk of assurance, I, I wanna pause for just a sec because you know, it's, it's easy to look at a guy like Wesley and his high expectations and his vision. I mean, Wesley's vision is to reform and renew the nation. He's spreading scriptural holiness across the land. The world is his parish. That's Wesley's vision. And it's like, man, it's easy to think, I, I, don't, I don't feel that way. Like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. Like the, the feeling of assurance and this kind of conviction that Wesley has, like, that's just not me. And, and I want to be real careful here because Wesley would be sensitive to this too. Our feelings and our emotions can be unreliable, right? They can keep us from really diagnosing reality. They really can. They are subjective. And as much as Wesley will admonish us, yes, you can experience the assurance. You can experience God's presence. Just because in this moment, right here, right now, you don't feel particularly close to God doesn't mean you're far from God. Doesn't mean you're going to hell. And I just feel like there's some people that need to hear that. That because of, oh, if I'm not feeling, if I'm not feeling it today, the reality is, is that you believe in Jesus. <laughs> you believe he's on the throne. You believe he came for you, that he died for you. That it de regardless of your temporary momentary feelings, your destiny is in the arms of almighty God. And so I think it's important for us to know that with these kinds of high expectations, with the way Wesley talks about this journey of faith. But Wesley's key contribution is what Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And for Wesley, this is just one of those key verses and key convictions that he has that what happens after you believe is just as important as to what happens when you came to believe. And that if nothing happens after you believe, then what really happened when you came to believe? There should be more. There should always be this growth. Our life of faith is dynamic. We shouldn't be like corroded cathedrals, empty, where faith, hope, and love were once alive and well, but now they're infrequent tourists, like we see in Western Europe and so much of our country, where we've got just these big, beautiful churches empty. There was once so much life and vitality, but now, man... What once was regular, what once was consistent with, with, with what, what want, these communities that once spread the kingdom are now just faint. And the image for Wesley, for us, is we, we should be more like an open flame for the world that's warm and welcome as we bring grace and truth that's visible that's contagious, that draws people in, that provides hope to a world that is so often lost. Like that's more the image Wesley has. And this means of grace 
This means of grace is what he has for us, is what he wants us to practice to desire more and more of God. So what are the means of grace? Means of grace, one, for Wesley is communion, right? Wesley practiced communion and was an example in his time. We talked to the Church of England at the time, practiced communion three times a year, Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. And Wesley's early group, when he was in Oxford, they practiced communion every week. And then later in his life, he would practice communion every single day because he said, these are the five benefits. Wesley thought these were the five benefits of of practicing Holy Communion. We're strengthened, we're made more fit for the service of God, we're made more constant in the service of God, we're kept from backsliding, we're spared many temptations. So, I mean, if that's the benefit, he gonna do it. (laughs) And so he follows Christ's command to, to do this often in remembrance of me. And so he practiced communion often. Other means of grace, prayer. And Wesley is famous for in his little prayer closet, like he distressed the floor. He put, he put holes in the floor because he was on his knees so much praying, reading scripture, attending worship, acts of mercy or service. All these things Wesley has in mind are means of grace. Now this isn't innovative. He's not new in this, but his language for what this is is important for us to note. Like this isn't a list of rules that you better go to church or else, right? It's not a list of rules that have to be followed or we're gonna be punished. That can make us think certain things about God's character. And it's more than just broad spiritual practices. And spiritual practices are important and good, but spiritual practices for us can mean a wide a range of things. I mean, running, quilting, yoga. Y'all have different spiritual practices. We have so many spiritual practices. It's more than spiritual practices in that. It's about grace. It's about a means of receiving grace. And there's only one giver of grace. There's only one person who really is grace. So these focus us, these tune our hearts to Christ. That's where Wesley is a little distinct in the Christian tradition and understanding what it is all of these things do. They increase our desires. So I don't know about you, but getting into a rhythm of practicing the means of grace isn't that easy getting into a steady rhythm, that staying power is tough. It's like a lot of the diets today, keto or whole 30 or whatever. It's like, I'm gonna get on a new diet. We make it about a week or two and then we backslide. Then uh, those fudge covered Oreos look delicious. And uh, they are delicious. (laughs) They really are. And uh, sometimes it's like that with us. You know, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read my Bible better this year and we, we get a, a beautiful plan. We buy a, a reading plan or we download a version app and it's like, come on, here we go. And we make it until we don't make it. And then it's like, well, I'm just gonna do the best I can and our discipleship becomes more accidental than intentional. We practice accidental discipleship instead of intentional discipleship. And I, I had an accident this week of I left my keys and my phone plugged in up at the office, up at the old uh, key building, the old state farm building, and had a meeting th- uh, Thursday here. And of course, leaving my phone and keys, I carpooled here because it was really cold. I like to walk normally, but it was really cold. And uh, 
uh, meeting starts and getting messages from Leslie, who's actually leading the meeting, that Lindsay needs to get a hold of me. And I'm like, oh, and I remember uh, oil change. And as much as an oil change should be quick, we know that often is not the case for whatever reason, lack of customer service, you know, whatever. Anyway, it was gonna take like three hours for three or four hours, half a day to get the oil changed. And she's stranded and I'm like, okay, so I'm texting people who are here who end up rescuing Lindsay and Max. And so she doesn't have to put up with a very agitated baby in close quarters waiting for an oil change. And so it all ended up good. And what does that have to do with me reading my Bible more, Shay? We're, we'll get there. We'll get there. We, we talked about all those all that was happening in the midst of this early Methodist movement, the Industrial Revolution is blowing up. This new nation, the American Revolution is going crazy. It's in full force. Like there's so many, there's like the reality is so dynamic. There's so much happening. The first and great awakening in the church, these revivalist meetings are happening. And there's a lot of figures looming larger than John Wesley. Uh, Jonathan Edwards for one, and maybe the most popular preacher, the most charismatic, dramatic preacher, um, who is probably quick to everyone's mind when you associate church in any way, across any kind of tradition, um, you, th you think about the, the big pastors today um, that are out there. I don't know who comes to mind for you. For me, I think of like T.D. Jakes. But uh, you think of the, like the most famous public pastor out there. It was probably George Whitfield probably George Whitfield, small guy, um, a little stout, but had a booming voice and was an actor. He even made Benjamin Franklin show up to church. And Benjamin Franklin, not a Christian, um, but was so impressed and so drawn to George Whitfield that even the likes of Benjamin Franklin showed up to listen to George Whitfield. And George Whitfield, I mean, Wesley couldn't preach like George. He couldn't preach like George. Uh, George started in the Methodist camp and they end up splitting over that issue that we've talked about. This relationship between our human agency and free will and God's sovereignty and, and what does God cause and not cause and all of that stuff. So they have a disagreement. They end up in different camps, but they stay friends their entire life. And George Whitfield asked John Wesley to preach his funeral when he died and John Wesley did. So that shows you the relationship stayed close. Here's what George Whitfield though had to say about Wesley. This is what George Whitfield said about Wesley at the end of George's ministry. My brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined to societies and thus preserved the fruit of his labor. This I neglected and my people are a rope of sand. My people are a rope of sand. So Wesley was real smart and knew the human condition. He knew, he knew how to spread deep and wide and that we need more than just a sermon. If our a spiritual discipline is just listening to sermons, then we're bound, to be, uh, we're bound to live a life full of accidental discipleship where we think about maybe listening to a good sermon here or there and we, we may follow up and may do more and, and, and follow up with what the preacher challenges us to do, but most likely we're, we're gonna forget and it's, it's all up to us. Uh, Wesley, see, Wesley knew needed more than a good sermon. <laughs> 
Wesley knew this. And so he created, he was a genius organizer. He formed these societies, which were the large groups that would, that would meet like this to worship and, and have communion. But he made class meetings mandatory. So class meetings were 10 to 12 people that would get together on a weekly basis around the question, how is it with your soul? And it was these people that were, would come together and you had to be part of a class meeting to be part of the society. And then for, for others, there were band meetings, which were uh, usually same gender, same age, same life stage, five to seven people that would meet, pray for each other, and can kind of, it was like a group confessional, a little deeper. So you've got societies, you've got class meetings, you've got band meetings. And so Wesley formed his church, this movement, the engine of this movement really was the small groups that Wesley was an effective preacher, no doubt. But he realized, like for folks to go deep, for, this, for there to be any staying power in any of this, any consistency, for this diet to last, for people to stick with it, you gotta have people that are all in together. You gotta have people with, with a common goal and a common mission. It's how I got bailed out because we have people here that share the same faith, the same heart, the same conviction. That these kinds of groups, this kind of intentional discipleship gets us out of the accidents of life. And when stuff goes south and stuff gets really tough and really bad, we have people, we have a community that are all in together. Matthew Allen Mobley writes this. This is, I think, was really insightful for me. Um, he wrote a book called Common Bound, The Small Groups of Methodism. These three things, the, there's three key factors to high-functioning groups, and they're this. There's a common goal. There's, they're cooperative in nature, and there's a high level of feedback associated with personal responsibility and individual accountability. And he, he derives this from a lot of sociological studies, but he looks at Wesley and sees, this is exactly what the class meetings had. They all had this common goal, this common vision. And I have to say, like, that's been the blessing for me and Lindsay Kay in our small group. We, we meet around this core vision and conviction and we cooperate. And there's this level of accountability and responsibility that we challenge each other with and we can bear our souls. And I, I just can't tell you like, isn't you should do this. Like if you don't do this, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying our life in the small group here has been so life-giving. It's been so crucial and critical to us keeping a diet, a spiritual diet and, and growing um, it, it's meant the world in terms of when, when chaos happens and life gets out of order and, and unplanned things happen, we were the first to call each other and text each other and step up for each other. And so my prayer for you is, is I, hope, I hope you have people in your life that are like that, even if you're not part of a small group. That's the genius of Wesley, the small group part. He, he's not, I don't know that he's credited with creating small groups, but is, he's, he is responsible for creating a system of intentional discipleship that clearly bore fruit. I mean, it's the reason the Methodist movement just blows up in the midst of a very, very volatile time 
when other churches were stagnant, when other churches weren't going anywhere, the Methodists were the circuit riders out on the frontier, making sure everybody could hear and everybody was getting involved and associated and followed up with. And, and this, the, there was this organization that was genius, that was amazing, that attended upon the souls. And, and Wesley realized, hey, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta help people go deeper. <laughs> A sermon in enough. Sermon in enough. We're in this together. In his great big vision, he could also pay attention to the details into every soul in his care. And he followed up on a quarterly basis with a lot of these class meetings to check in to see how it was going. And so there was, an, there was, there was this high expectation with participation in these societies. And so for us in thinking about the, the DNA of this movement, I just wanna ask you, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? And do you have those people do you have those people? And if you don't have those people, um, this just so happens to be a weekend where we've got group life and couples ministry all ready with all their stuff out, ready to go. So if you feel God stirring you, if you've been longing for this or you feel God stirring in you to start a group, um, join an existing group, you can do that. You can do that today. Um, that's the key component in this Methodist movement is this intentional discipleship piece that it's, it's not about accidental discipleship and this big, huge experience. And, you know, if you have maybe enough of those in your life, then you're going to be all right. But it's the way in which we stay at this daily. If we want a chance at any of this, it takes getting after it every day. And it takes people who are coming alongside with the same common goal and conviction and who are all in with us. And so I just want to close as I'm going to invite the band back up as we close. And I just want to pray again over us this prayer of that Paul has for us. And so as we close and we, we close to this morning in worship, please bow with me as, as we I wanna pray this prayer that's, that's in God's word over us. Paul says, this is my prayer. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.